Lord, would you pour out your spirit, give us yourself, let us be with you this morning. We bless you and thank you, Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Children are welcome to go with Mother Wendy and little ones with Miss Cheryl. I had the privilege in the summer of 1989. Now, if you weren't born yet, don't tell me that. I had, this, I had the privilege in the summer of 1989 of being in Central and Eastern Europe in the time, literally just months before the wall came down in Berlin. And we were in Budapest for a bit of that time. And it was, it was electric. The energy in the city was just was just electric. I met a couple, a Bulgarian couple, who because of what he wrote in his doctoral dissertation, he was being pursued by the Bulgarian government and they were trying to get out. And we talked over coffee at McDonald's, which is not a place I frequent, but anyway, that, there you are. When you're in Budapest, it's like the hip place to be. Then, not anymore. And they gave me their contact info and all this stuff and said, you have to help us. It's an amazing electric time. So while I was there, we had the opportunity, the little group I was with, we had the opportunity to go to the, to, to the, to the soccer, the football ran in waves. He, he, he was visibly taken aback. It was stunning. Different part of the world, different time. St. Patrick. I look rather St. Patrick-ish right now, which is wonderful. But I don't know. Can you, St. Patrick, maybe, maybe you get a different name. I don't know. But anyway, St. Patrick's. And I had the opportunity to be in this church in the, the, the edge of Nairobi. And they had two services in the morning. It's one of our sister Anglican churches in the world. So their liturgy is the same. So even in the two services, one's in English and the other's in Swahili. Even in the Swahili one, at least I know like where we are in the flow of things. Even though I don't know what's being said. Packed out. Completely packed out people standing along the walls, people outdoors at the windows looking in, spilling out the back of the church into the churchyard. Today, friends, is World Mission Sunday. Our archbishop has asked us on the Sunday, which comes before the celebration of the Transfiguration, which is next Sunday, Transfiguration when Jesus goes up the mountain and he takes three with him and they see his glory, Right? He goes from Gandalf the Gray to Gandalf the White, and they, I'm not kidding, that's what Tolkien is doing, and they, and they all go, oh my goodness, right? And, and we're going to talk about that next week, but he's basically being bolstered to go face the passion. Jesus needed to be bolstered, you know? Hey, have a hard time making it through the week. Jesus had to be bolstered to make it through the passion. That's for next week. You're going to be here next week. You want to know that. You want to know how that works in his life, how he meets you in the places you need to be bolstered. But our archbishop says, hey, on the week before we talk about his glory being revealed, let's talk about trying to get that, that news out to the world, that his glory would be revealed. So this today is World Mission Sunday. And I want to say if we're honest, if we're honest living in post-Christian, post-Western, post-whatever, trying to figure out who it is, Right, one of the two, one of the two big corners. Notice how I'm doing this, so you can see the back of this amazing vestment. One of the two big northern corners of our nation, the northwest, and then and you know New England, the, the the least church places in our country. 
that are a lot more like, say, Western Europe than they are like lots of our country. In these places, if we're honest, it's easier to think about world mission than it is to think about mission here. It's easier to remember those amazing stories. I hope you have experienced a moment like one of those at some point in your life. There's something profoundly encouraging about being with a massive group of people who see the glory of Jesus and respond to it. And to be with them, even if they sing a language you don't understand, to be with them as they sing. Now, we've got all this stuff. We have it here. It's about 100 people, maybe 80 on a Sunday, but a little more than 100 in us, of us. And it's lovely. We have the same heart they have. We see Jesus and we want to see him. We believe, we pray, it's earnest, it's real. Wow, if you've ever had the opportunity to be with a massive group of people, it's, it's fantastic. But if we're honest, world mission's a little easier to think about than mission to a, whatever you want to call it, post-Christian, post-modern, whatever you want to call it, um, world, right? I always thought post-modern world You know, what do you do when you run out of a name? All you can tell yourselves is we're not that. But then I thought, well, well, modernity is not such a great name either, really. You're basically just saying it's this moment now. We're we're now running on at least two in Western culture writ large. We're running on at least two big movements that we don't, you know, don't have enough to them to have a beautiful name. Something in that that's not all that exciting. Here's the thing for this morning. Even in the earliest church, even in the very early days, even with people who met the resurrected Jesus still about and people talking to them, even then, even then there were people saying, wait a minute, why hasn't this whole thing been consummated yet? And so Peter writes to them and he says, hey, look, God hasn't forgotten. He's still in the game. God hasn't lost the plot. Hold on. Believe. He's not slow. He just has a different kind of timing. You ever heard the old preacher's joke, right? Man goes into his prayer closet and he says, Lord, you know, your word tells us that, you know, to you, a a thousand years are like just, you know, a blip in time. Just like like a second. In other words, like, yeah. And the man says, well, then, by analogy, would say a million dollars to us be just like, you know, a penny to you? The Lord's like, "Eh, I guess you could put it that way. And the man goes, oh, that's so great. Lord, could I have a buck? And the Lord says, sure. Just hang on a minute. (laughs) Even then, they want to know. The world's crazy. The world's on fire. How does this work out? I had the opportunity to be once in Kolkata. And I was meeting with these fantastic young 20-somethings who were working with the International Justice Mission. And one of the things that IJM would do is they went into a new place where there was a lot of human trafficking going on, is they would give these, these young dudes a really difficult job. I'm serious. And they would say to them, you need to go in here and learn where the connections are. So we want you to go into the bars and act like someone 
who's looking for a woman to be with. And it was both painful and beautiful to debrief these guys. It's painful because obviously the whole situation is so painful. But it was beautiful how painful it was for them to see the goodness in them and the holiness in them and the conflictedness they would have. They'd come back and be, I feel so dirty. You know? And we'd, we'd get them cleaned up and we'd pray with them and all the rest. And we're debriefing these guys. And they're saying, there's so much in this city that's, that's so painful. There's so many poor. There's so many things going on. Why? Why? And they wrestle with the big question. How can God be good and powerful and all this stuff is still going on? And there's this moment <laughs> where they stop sharing and they look at me. And I think, oh, Jesus, help me. You know, if you keep backing it up, if you keep backing it up, all I know is God has always been in it for the long game. In Peter's other letter, we're told this incredibly mysterious thing that it was known before the foundation of the world that the Christ would suffer and die. I don't know how that works. It's known before the foundation of the world that the Christ would suffer and die. I have no idea how that works. But what it means is that God, nonetheless, created and deemed it to be good. Even knowing that he himself would have to enter and that his glory would be to go to the cross. Jesus said, when I'm lifted up, I'll you know, call all men to myself. And he called his hour, his cross, he called it his glory. He gave himself in such un held back complete and utter love that he called it his glory. Now he has other glory and that's the glory we long to see and do see and will see. But that was something he said was his glory in that time. And God somehow, this is the, this is the story of the book of Job. Job suffers horribly. Job's friends come and they're about as useful as people are in moments like that often bless them, right? When you don't know what to say, what do you do? You know the answer. Don't say anything. <laughs> Give them a hug. Just say, I love you. Say, I'm here. I'm with you. Tell them you don't know, but don't make up chintzy stuff. And Job's friends show up and they basically make up chintzy stuff. And finally they quit. And then Job speaks and Job says to God, come on, God. And God answers back with questions. But we misunderstand it. We think God is putting Job in his place. He isn't. God's changing Job's perspective. He's saying to Job, I'm not, you know, you can't handle the whole thing. But what you can handle is look. Look at the wonder. Look at the beauty. Have a big picture reset. It's good. There's a wonder in life. And it's good. And he resets Job's soul for him. So Peter, friends, Peter is saying, hold on. Keep the plot. There's something about goodness that has to grow. This is what the Lord is saying to Job. There's something about goodness that has to grow. It's in the nature of goodness Jesus shares all these parables about seeds being sown, about things being nurtured. It's in the nature of goodness that it takes time, that it has to form, 
and to develop and to be gestated and nurtured and cared for. It's in the nature of goodness that it has story. And in order to have story, you exist through time. The nature of evil can be, you can blow up something in a minute if you got the means and you don't care. You can steal, kill, and destroy. And that's all the game that Satan has. He can steal, kill, and destroy, but that's no story. God is the holder of story, and he authors story, and he deems it to be good, and he brings it back to goodness. And so Peter says, hold on. Keep the plot. Believe he hasn't forgotten you. He's just working a long game for some reason that he can take. Here's what I think that means for us here on Boston's North Shore as we think about Mission Sunday. Now, I'm about to do something I'd never do. I'm going to give you twos and threes within twos. I don't like to do this because it confuses people, but hold on, all right? Does that make sense? So there are two things that this means for us, and the first one has three points. Sorry. The first thing that it means to us is to realize we're on cross-cultural mission. We are. We know this, but it needs to be said. Christendom is not dying. It's already been dead for a while. We are not thinking, oh, Christendom is dying. It has been dead for a while. Whether that's good or whether that's bad or to what degree it's both, I, you can disagree with me. No one can perfectly name it, in my opinion. So we can disagree, fine. It's time that we have already been grieving what needs grieving, readjusting, and coming afresh to a new moment. It's a different culture out there. It's a different story. That's not an insult or a compliment to anyone. It's simply an observation. How then, that's number one, big picture, we're doing something cross-cultural. When we are on mission, trying to help people see the glory of Jesus. So then the three, three simple principles of crossing cultures. Number one, Every culture has an internal logic. They might eat things you would never eat. They might do things you would never do. They might wear stuff you think is absolutely ghastly. And they're standing there saying, same back at you, buddy. But every culture has an internal logic. Some of you heard this story before as well. Forgive me, it's just such a good one. In the, in the early 90s, I'm living in Budapest, the the metros were the, um, the, they were built deep in the earth to be the Cold War bomb shelters, and you're riding these escalators that move. I mean, they truck. You're riding this escalator down this deep thing, and I'm like four steps from the bottom, and the thing stops. Well, being a, you know, a young American with places to go, I do this and probably knee the poor person in front of me in the back by mistake because none of them moved. Well, what am I doing? I'm standing there going, oh, look at this. Here it is. See, look what communism did to you people. Turned you into a bunch of cattle. Can't think for yourselves. Everybody's standing here obeying the rules. This is all going through my mind. 
you know, kind person that I am. And, and I'm just as frustrated as can be. I'm like, four freaking steps, people. You know, can we just move here? I want to get to work. So the Lord had given me a Hungarian friend. So the next time we went to coffee, I just said, hey, I had this experience the other day and this thing happened. What is that about? He's like, oh, he said, because there's so many older people who use the metro, then all of us, when the stairs stop, we all stand still and wait because many of them couldn't go up and down the steps. Every culture has an internal logic. Every culture has things they do that are good and things they do that are a mess. They're just different in different cultures. So there's a need for a humility. There's a need for curiosity. Ask questions. Oh, that's different. Second, well, I already said that. Every culture has good and bad in it. No culture is perfectly good. No culture is perfectly bad. Everyone in the midst of the crazy mix of culture has some universal space. Nobody's really itching to die. Everybody wants goodness in their life. They need relationships and love. Try to stand in the common space. Try to stand in the common space and love people there. Last principle for crossing cultures, which is one of the big things we have to realize, the last principle is the most important one, and that is always be asking yourself the question, is everything I'm doing building or destroying trust? Is everything I'm doing building or destroying trust? It's snowing in Budapest one day. I wanted to get some ice cream before it started snowing when I got done with my teaching. So I got done with my teaching. I went and I got some ice cream. I'm walking down the street, sidewalk, eating my ice cream. People are looking at me, and, and I realize, like, I'm making a scene. My Hungarian friend told me, we don't walk and eat at the same time. We're not in a hurry. No one walks and eats, especially in snow. Is everything I'm doing building or destroying trust? Second thing then, if we're on cross-cultural mission, is to meet the society around us. I mean the people you know, friends, acquaintances, whatever. To meet the people around us in something like the way the earliest followers of Jesus proclaimed the gospel across culture. Now, this is a really fun and amazing thing that happens in the book of Acts. When the first believers, you, go, you know, go read Peter's sermons in the book of Acts. When they speak to the Jews, they say things like, the law has been fulfilled. Because you would, right? The long-awaited Messiah when God will meet his people, has come. You would say that to Jews in that moment because it makes sense. It's the story they know, and it's what they've been waiting for. But when they begin to go to Greeks, they don't show up to Greeks and say, the law has been fulfilled. Why would you? As a matter of fact, it's such a big thing that the hinge of the book of Acts is when they realize, oh, God really does want this gospel story of Jesus' love to go to every peoples in the whole world. And in order to do that, we're going to have to have some people who are crossing cultures, essentially, is what they realize. And so the church 
in Antioch, which is a kind of an amazing church, if you read about it, people doing things in all their different gifts. It's diverse. There's Simon, who was called Niger. That means he was an African dude who was black. And it's a wonderful church. So they say, Let, let's set apart Paul and Barnabas. So they set apart Paul and Barnabas. They pray for them. They bless them. And they send them. And then Paul begins to communicate to the Greeks, not by saying to them, hey, the law has been fulfilled, but rather by saying to them things that were common ground space for them. So Paul goes to Athens. He goes to Athens, which is, you know, the the Boston of Greece, right? It's where everybody gets together to be an egghead and to ponder stuff and to talk about stuff. And Paul goes and he walks around the city first. First thing he does, curious, humility, observation. He goes and he walks around the city and he says, oh my word, these people have lots of idols. So if Paul's going mission to the Jews and he went to some Jewish city and he saw they had lots of idols, then what would his lead word be? What is wrong with you people with all these idols? You know God can't stand that. Justified lead word, right? Makes sense? But he's not talking to Jews. He's talking to Greeks. So he says, hey, I noticed you got a lot of idols. That means you guys are concerned that you want to please the gods. Common ground. And he says, well, guess what? I've got such great news for you. You don't have to stress out trying to please umpteen thousand gods because there's only one of them. Brilliant. Right? It's freaking simple and brilliant. There's only one God. And not only that, but this God loves you and he's near. He's not removed. He's not like all those crazy gods you guys have who get jealous of each other and fight with each other and cause trouble with humans just for the fun of it. No, he's near and he loves you. And then Paul is so brilliant, he even says, as one of your own poets has said, common ground. And he says, he's real, he matters, he loves you. And as a matter of fact, he's acted recently in history in a crazy amazing way in that he sent his own son into the world who has expressed his love to people. So like, now's the time, right? Like, get on board now. Like, this is fresh. No time like the present. Believe this. And then he says to them, this has been proven, if you will. God has given assurance of this by raising this man from the dead. He goes to the Greeks. He says, hey, did you know a human has defeated death? That's the lead word. A human has defeated death. There's a man who has passed through death and come through to the other side, and he'll take you with him. And what happens? Some people go, you're crazy. Paul's like, okay. That's not a stone anyway. (laughs) I've been stoned. I had worse. So you want to call me crazy? Fine. No big deal. Some of them go, you're crazy. But some others say, we will hear you again about this. And some of them believed. Apparently, some of these who believed became noteworthy in the church because they're actually listed then. Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others among them. And we're seeing already that this kingdom of Jesus that is breaking into the world is causing social ripples. People coming out of the Areopagite clubby thing women getting into leadership roles and being respected in ways that they had not been respected in the society at, at large. 
And then all of this is so amazing that it leads to the first council of the church, which is told in the book of Acts. And the council of the church, they essentially wrestle. It's the first time of all the ecumenical councils in the history of the church. And they essentially wrestle with the question, can we trust these other believers? Is this real? Can we trust them? This crossing culture, can we trust them? They have a, they have a trusting crossing cultural wrestling moment. And Peter nails it when he gets up and he says, look, God who knows the heart has given them the spirit. This is an incredible thing. If you, if, if you don't remember anything else, remember this this morning. This is worth the price of admission. God is the heart knower, Peter says. He says, God is the heart knower. In Greek, that's kardiogenostes. Genosis, gnosis, knowledge, cardio heart. He's the heart knower. If you feel terribly alone in life, God is the heart knower. If you wonder if anybody's taking you seriously, if God hears you, God is the heart knower. If you struggle with something you can't get out of and you would long to be free, or you do, you would you you do long to be free but you feel so horrible because you can't get out of it, but in your heart you want to. God is the heart knower. He knows your heart. He credits your heart. And that's, that's boom. That's bang the table moment that turns the hinge in the first council. God is the heart knower. Peter says it. The same Peter who says God works a long game. He says that in that moment. And the people grab onto it, and they believe it. All right. I've been going a bit. Let's skip that. God's the heart knower. Let's just stay there. We'll just stop there. Trust him, friends. Believe him. Be free. Live in that. Love people. Cross cultures. Sow seeds. Let it be. Grieve what you need to grieve, but keep your head up. Do not grieve without hope. And know that you are beloved. Beloved. I invite you to take a few moments in silence now as we pray. Simply know that God is the heart knower. Invite him into that space in your interior life where your where your heart is. <laughs>